before I start the show, I'd like to remind you about the conference that's coming up this week in Melbourne called CG Futures. The conference features internationally renowned 2D and 3D visual effects, animation and gaming artists. Luma Pictures will be bringing some of their best staff for showreel reviews so you can bring your work in and get their opinion on how you can do it better. It's a must for students and people trying to get into the industry. You should get your tickets soon because it's probably going to sell out. I'll be attending, so come up and say hello. Check out the website at cgfutures.com. Also, I'd like to mention Motion Melbourne, which is coming up on the 12th of March at the Loop Bar in Melbourne. At the meetup, Cadre Pictures will be presenting their work, talking about their pipeline, asset creation and redshift. It's a fantastic place to get to know the motion community. It starts at 6.30 and is free entry. Check out Motion Melbourne on Facebook. Okay, let's get into the show. My name's Matthew Packwood, and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation, and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be having a conversation with Peter Visca, both a legend and a veteran of the Melbourne animation scene. Peter started his career back in the 70s, where he worked in the newspaper industry first as a political cartoonist and then he had his own children's page called the Whatchamacallit Club, which had over 50,000 members. Peter then moved into book illustration where he illustrated the famous books Far Out Brussels Sprout, All Right Vegemite and Unreal Banana Peel. After starting his own animation studio, he went on to create TVCs for some of Australia's most well-known household brands. He then went on to work in cartoon series work, where he worked on shows in the 90s including Liftoff. Before he created the iconic character of Little Elvis Jones for his series Little Elvis Jones and the Truck Stoppers. More recently, Peter developed the children's television show Jar Dwellers, which he's presently creating series two. First of all, Peter, thanks very much for taking the time to come in and chat with us today. Thank you. It's going to be an exciting time. <laughs> I hope so. Mm. First of all, I want to chat to you about students and other people who are sort of in the industry would like to work at Vista Tunes. Is a job as a 2D series animator a sustainable and strong career path? I believe so. It's taken us a while. Uh, Melbourne has sort of come to the fore of being the hub of animation. We've currently got four studios that are working on projects at the moment. There seems to be work for at least the next five years that I can see. At Viscatoons, we've currently employed 20 animators that have come through the ranks of the different animation schools in Melbourne. And do you think it's a well-paid profession? The average animation pay is around about $1,000 a week. That's what it starts with. And we rate animators into C animators, B animators and A animators. A animators can pull in between $1,500 a week and $2,500 a week, depending on their skill level and their experience. And that's sort of like a freelance contract base. 
No, that would be on a long-term project. They would be employed. They would also get the superannuation and they would get holiday pay. Cool. And generally you work on projects or do you sustain staff over the long period? I used to sustain staff over the long period. In between gigs, you start tearing up $100 notes and it's not sustainable. So what we do now is if there's a big project, we will interview, select and then contract staff for the period of that project and it's project by project. What are the benefits for up-and-coming illustrators and animators for working overseas? To work overseas, you really need to be well-disciplined in the what I call the industrialised creative process. You won't get a job overseas unless you've had experience here. I mean, you may, but normally you wouldn't. If you've had experience at a studio here, they would certainly know whether it's a respectable studio in regards to quality of output, and that would give you an in to an overseas studio. We particularly have very good relationships with Canada and England. It's a sort of a reciprocal thing. If we get people from over there, we know that they're at a certain standard. What would a day, week or month be like for an animation director? I just got to differentiate between auteur films and an industrialised creative process or an animation studio. An animation studio is quite different in that at the end of the day, at the end of the project, we have to all end up drawing with the same hand, even though you have your own particular inert signature style, you need to uh, sublimate that so that you're actually drawing Mickey Mouse as Mickey Mouse should be drawn by Walt Disney or whoever designed it in the first place. It's the same when we come into a series at a studio like Viscatoons where the characters have been designed, the uh, personalities have been drawn up, the characters' voices have been locked in and you need to fit in with the rest of the team and produce footage that looks like the person next door to you so that it's all homogenous. So would the, an animation director, what would his day-to-day be like? Normally in the morning, this morning, for example, there were notes to be finished off on, we've just finished an episode where the two lots of corrections had been done, take one, take two corrections had been done. I went ahead and did what's called the post-fix-up edit uh, scripts notes. I would look at the scene by scene to make sure there was a, what we wanted to convey in the first place was working. Up until now, the animation director has handled most of it and I will come in at the end to see what he's done. And there may be things that I've got in my mind that I haven't communicated properly or that might be better if, and then we'll change a sequence or a scene just to get that little bit of extra cream on top of the uh, cake. What software skills do you require to work at Vista? Everyone works Photoshop. Everyone needs to know an animation program of some sort or know the way that it works. We are currently using a product called Toon Boom Harmony and we've found that to be um, fantastic. We've changed the whole studio over from what used to be Flash about four years ago to 100% Toon Boom. What are the important things that people should know before commencing a career in series animation? First of all, we try very hard to make a team that's symbiotic, that everyone gets on with everyone else. There's no just turning up for the day, doing your job and walking out the door. We all try to value add at every stage of the process. We try to give people enough time and inspiration to make everything better. And so the main thing is you need to get on with other people. And is a like close-knit work environment? sort of people about every metre along the uh, different desks. We soon find who works with who and who doesn't. 
What would you like to see in a mid-level showreel? I'm really interested in 2D animation. I love 2D animation. I love the early stuff, the latest stuff, what people can do with 2D drawing to make you believe that it's alive. If you're starting as a student and you're trying to get a showreel up, it's really, really hard. If you've been working in the industry, it's also very hard because a lot of the stuff's copyright and you're not supposed to show anyone else. So I want to see in a showreel some scans or some best pages of your sketchbook. I want to see some animation that is not run-of-the-mill. I want to see some lip-syncing people, automobiles, some other thing moving and with the personality, control of gravity and speed and stopping and starting and smooth flow is really imperative. It's hard because I'm looking and everyone else in our studio is looking for originality and personality. So if you've got originality and personality, it's going to come out in your drawings and we're going to spot that and we're going to help you make that even better by experience in the system. And length? I can tell in one minute. Any advice on what not to do? Come to me with a robot. (laughs) Alrighty. So what movies or magazines inspired you when you were growing up? One magazine called M-A-D, Mad Magazine. I uh, first saw it and it changed my life. I saw it was about September 1964, I think. I opened it up at one of my mate's houses. It was like the explosion inside my brain when I realised that you didn't just have to do cartoons. You could have satire, you could have caricature, you could have gags, you could have good writing, fabulous back covers. Everything was in this first Mad Magazine that I saw and my life has changed totally ever since. And was that before or after you started illustrating and how did you discover illustration? Well, I hadn't even started and then I saw this and then I wasn't one of those kids that started doodling when I was four, five, six and seven. I really didn't start till I was about 16 and 17 at school and then went on to uh, publish my own version of Mad Magazine at school, which got me uh, suspended (laughs) and demoted. You practised your skills at school and then you went out into the workforce It'd be great if you could briefly describe how you started working in illustration and animation. It was basically self-taught. I decided to start copying some of the better artists in the magazines. In your early stages, to me, copying is okay. Tracing is forbidden. If you can copy, you start to learn how someone else does their hands, how they use their eyes, how they work hair, how they use shadow, light. And my school was basically the early artists of Mad Magazine that I would religiously copy. I then took that into starting to do my own caricatures of people, my own characters, went on a trip to Europe and started sketching buildings and people and that's where it started. Then I came back here and gave myself 12 months to crack something. Yeah. And was there any university in that mix? None at all to do with animation or art or illustrating. Cool. Bachelor of Commerce only. (laughs) I thought psychology. I don't know why. Okay. It'd be great if you could briefly describe your career path. It's just these four or five fantastic stepping stones that have gone towards allowing me to run a business now that covers it all. First of all, I got a job being a political cartoonist for a newspaper. By that stage, I'd honed my caricature skills and my politics. At the same time, couldn't justify being kept on the staff for the whole week uh, to do one cartoon. So I talked them into letting me um, produce a children's page for the paper. That was called the Watchamacallit Club in the uh, early 70s. That begat about 50,000 members. That 
allowed me to start talking directly to the kids. I would finish my copy and then the response would arrive in the mail on a Monday morning and it just buckets and bucket loads of letters. I then realised I was not speaking to the two and three-year-olds I thought I was writing to, but I was actually getting through to eight to 12-year-olds. That then springboarded onto being asked to illustrate the Far Out Brussels Sprout books, which I did. After I did those, that wouldn't it be nice if I could start to move my illustrations? So I tried to get a job with Alex Stitt, who had the best studio in town at the time. And they said, well, sorry, you've got to go through Swinburne. So I signed up and got into Swinburne, did the course there, then set up my own studio. So what year did you set up your own studio? In 1980. And that's been continuous the whole time? It's been continuous ever since. Cool. So how many major series have you done throughout that period? Major is probably what one would call a TV series, which is normally numbers between 26 half hours or 50 quarter hour shows. I was lucky enough to do some early work with the Australian Children's Television Foundation and then was asked by them to help out with different programs they produced. I then suggested a an idea I had at the time about this character called Little Elvis and I wrote away to Gracelands to see if I could get permission to make a show called Little Elvis. And they wrote yep. back and said, oh, we might have that idea ourselves one day. No. So I went back to the Australian Children's Television Foundation and told them this idea. They came back and said, look, the government currently has a distinctly Australian uh, incentive. Uh, how can we make it distinctly Australian? So Little Elvis became Little Elvis Jones and the truck stoppers. He had red hair instead of black hair and he lived in the middle of the uh, desert at a place called Wanapu and in a roadhouse and turns up on the 10th anniversary of Elvis's death. And this, this was in the mid-90s. Correct. And um, do you think that was your most satisfying project? What is really, really satisfying about that, I was, I was able to put a lot of my creativity, originality and ideas into it. It allowed me to direct a big program for the first time. And then ever since, I have had a nonstop response from kids who were watching it at the time to say how much they loved what we got to put into it. Including myself, yeah, because I was a child in that period. I heard somewhere that Rove McManus worked on the show. He was digitising the painted backgrounds and turning them into a digital format so that we could put them in. That was the technological changeover where we were still drawing on paper but scanning in and then colouring in digitally, but also painting the backgrounds with gouache paint, but then scanning them and turning them into digital format so we could overlay them in different layers and levels. So Rove was our scanner. (laughs) How old do you reckon he was? Oh, early 20s. For those people who don't know who Rove McManus is, he's like a television presenter in Australia and worked overseas. He's pretty well known here. Um, So failures. Have you had any failures and what did you learn from them? Once you get the taste of creating a concept, you can't stop. There's a couple that I was really, really happy with the idea and was not able to get Dan Dan the Dunny Man uh, off the ground and I wasn't able to get Billboard Boy off the ground, which were two concepts that I still think would fly. You know, you got to let go sometime. Did you put in a lot of effort and what did you learn from not getting them up? What I've learned all my career is that terrible thing or wonderful thing called good timing or bad timing, trends, changes, whatever else, normally you get at least three or four knockbacks with every idea and then something clicks. And with all of these, 
it's a challenge because you have a $7.5 million budget to find to make these things and when you do that, you need someone to say yes first of all and then another network will say yes. Then you can go overseas and say, well, this network in Australia's got it. Would you want to be in on it? So it's it's that uh, hard deal of getting started. And how do you deal with the pressure and when things go wrong, sort of respond to that? I have a very optimistic personality. I also believe in problem solving. If things are going wrong, it's no use blaming anyone. It's better to just fix it. And that's the challenge. Cool. All right. So what are the production schedules like and have you worked a lot of hours and what's your work-life balance like? I've had four children with my wife, Jenny, and when I was illustrating kids' books, I would try very hard to get home around about five or six o'clock. I would then have a studio in the house or a granny flat at the back and then go there after the kids were asleep. And then I could work the midnight to dawn shift. So, So you've worked a lot. Yes. You've had an extensive career. Do you regret working those hours? Is there things that you think that you probably should have done instead of doing that? I don't like it. I love it. It's just wonderful to start with a blank sheet of paper and make something that can exist 20 years later or 30 years later, entertain people, become iconic in their lifetime, and it's fun. What are the hardest things you had to learn to progress your career? Drawing horses. The the hard thing is getting people to believe in your vision and delivering and then once you deliver, you actually develop a track record where people will trust you to go to the next project. Cool. So now I'd like to move on and look at your early career in detail. Describe your experiences working as a political cartoonist. You've got to keep up with politics and you have to hone your skills all the time so in your cartoon, it's not naff. You can see some fun as well as a pretty pertinent caption that people get a giggle and a laugh from. Really find out what deadlines were like and they are punishing. And it really makes your brain travel at a 1,000 miles an hour to think of an idea, improve it, reject it, think of another idea, no, that's no good, maybe I'll do this one, maybe you should be taller, shorter, fatter, maybe he or she could be turn into some other animal to make the point better. You've got to keep ahead of with politics and you have to hone your skills all the time. And why did you move away from doing political satire? It was a natural evolution. I stayed with it for about five or six years. I uh, left the newspaper. I went to America to see if I could crack the political cartooning field there. That was when Rupert Murdoch was starting to make inroads. Had my chats with him and he just sort of allocated about three different Australians into cartooning positions, uh, Paul Rigby, Bill Mitchell and someone else and then so there wasn't room for me in. and then I realised how big that pond was so I thought I'd come back here and be humble and <laughs> stay in a little <laughs> pond. Just want to backtrack a little bit and talk about your um, children's newspaper page which is sort of around the same time. So it was a kid's newspaper, it was called... The Watchamacallit Club. <laughs> and it had 50,000 members, you said earlier. How does that compare to, uh, like, being in social media? Was it the same? Just I would spend three days in the week writing the copy, thinking of an original attack on the page, and then have a competition that kids would partake in. Then they would do that on a Sunday, run down to the post office, send it in, and it would arrive Monday or Tuesday morning. 
it was fantastic. They would then become members of the club. Uh, one of them I'm still working with today. Which one was that? Uh, Shane McGowan, who's one of the most wonderful illustrators. What sort of work were on the pages? And you're doing one a week or one a day? One a week. Started off as about a half-page thing and it grew to be a double-page spread every Sunday. That was awesome because it allowed me to really start to play yep. and sometimes I would do things to the printers like have the page you can only read it in the mirror so I'd flip the negative so the kids would have to hold it to the mirror to read it. Yeah. Uh, I got the call at quarter to 12 at night when the press was running it flat out, printer saying there's a mistake. So I've told everyone down the line that this is happening except someone forgot to tell the printer. So that was a bit of fun I had all the time. I'd always trying to do something different. It was very innovative, I thought, and I would never let kids just colour something in. I would do half a drawing and ask them to finish it off. I would have someone holding a flag stick and ask the children to draw a flag uh, that would be on the stick. But it was all tickling the brain uh, in making them do something that was fun. And what did you learn in that period that sort of helped you out when you became an animator? Well, I found a voice speaking to the 8 to 12-year-olds. I still take on that tone when they let me write a script for Jar Dwellers. Um, most of my drawings were fairly animated anyway. When I'm trying to put them in books, you'll also see a lot of vitality in the illustration that makes it feel like it's moving. And that's why now when we do beatboards or you do an illustration that sets up a scene with maybe some of the characters doing something, it's like a cartoon that's got about 10 elements in it. Where did it come from? Where's it going to? Uh, what's going to be the physical action in this particular spot? For people of my generation, the Far Out Brussels Sprouts book was sort of iconic. So how did you go from working in a newspaper to doing books? And what was the process like of developing those books? I got a call from Oxford University Press to try out see whether my style would fit a particular collection of rhymes that June Factor had compiled. When I started to read them, visions came into my head. I did a couple, sent it off and then got the gig. The book was finished, put together, released. Not much happened. <laughs> it's hard to believe that not much happened. There was this slow burn started to build and then all of a sudden there's a call from Oxford University, something's happening here. Yeah. And then... They'd sold out. And then there's a second edition and that disappeared. The third edition disappeared. I think about probably the 40th edition now. Then they said, why don't we do another book? Uh, let's go. Um, June, what have you got? Then so June came up with a whole new note and we call that All Right Vegemite. And then this is crazy. My first book, second book, third book, uh, Unreal Banana Peel came out. Again, I started to grow with the illustrations and become freer and freer and they became more and more fun. So how many illustrations were you doing per book? About 100 per book. And how many, how long did you have to do that? Uh, that was about three months. Cool. And we, it was all uh, done at home or did you have a studio? I had a studio. It's a lot easier to work yeah. in a studio when you've got four kids. And do you collect royalties from that book? Have done so for about 30 years. Cool. <laughs> was the success of those books important for your career? Absolutely, because it helps if you start to get some sort of reputation. The other thing was I was able to invest the money from that into the animation studio. You got the money from your books and then you started up an animation studio, Mickey Duck. 
briefly describe the history of Mickey Duck and how it evolved into Vista Tunes. I set up the Mickey Duck Animation Company with a couple of students. Uh, Neil Robinson was one of them, and we're still working together today. He's been away and back again a few times, but the rest was trial and error. Someone said, what do you do? And I said, I've got an animation studio. Oh, look, I'm thinking about making an ad. Could you help me out? Yes, we can. Did that. Three or four ads are made, and then that becomes a showreel, and away you go. So mainly TVCs back in the early 80s? Totally and utterly TVCs. And how long did you do TVCs before you started your first series? About four years. I just have to point out that was well before digital technology had even entered the foray. Everything was paper and pencil and paint and cells and cameras and painted backgrounds. And was it more of a professional industry back then, being that everyone was like well-trained artists? Yes, it's very, very different and very uh, pertinent because what would happen then, someone would walk up the stairs with a folio and you check their folio and they wouldn't have been to animation school probably, uh, but they had fabulous drawings. So you'd say, yes, we'll sign you up, become a trainee. You would join as an in-betweener. The main animator would put the main four or five keys down with the action. The in-betweener would then have to put the other maybe eight or 12 drawings in that sequence. The problem with the industry at that stage, and always has been, that the in-betweener, when they started, was probably the worst drawer in the room. So they've got the most drawings to do, and it's easy to do the drawing that's really near to where the master has done his fantastic drawing. As you move further away, your drawing got a bit more and more off model, then you came back again for the next key drawing. It's a bit of a thing, and you'll see this uh, in every studio. <laughs> so what you're trying to get at there is that it's a variety of quality in the animation, depending yeah. on who's doing the drawing. Correct. Yeah. You'd often call people up uh, for drawing off model, and that's where I mentioned earlier in the piece where everyone has to draw with the same hand. Yeah. Well, when you're drawing pencil on paper and you're not manipulating a prefabricated drawing, which is what the situation is now, yeah. it's very easy to draw the ears are a little bit too big, the eyes too far apart, the nostrils aren't quite where they should be, and then the character soon comes off model. You've done a lot of TVC work over the years. What are the benefits of doing TVC work outside your series work? Back in the day, you would work with some of the best creatives in the advertising industry who would call you in and say, look, we've got half an idea or we've got a full idea, what's the best way to do it? They would even dare to give you a storyboard that had already been done and worked out with a, with something called a real script. Yep. Um, quite often now you'll get half a script and no storyboard and they ask you to do everything. So it was a golden days um, and there were some really nice campaigns. We got involved with Fredo Frog, Willie Wheaties, um, Musty Bar people. It was just fun to play with iconic things and even something called the, the Blue Lou. <laughs> Everyone has the blue loo, don't they? Well, it was the introduction of those stupid yeah. things that colour the water when you, every time you flush. And um, they and they used the voice of Kenneth Williams from um, the uh, uh, Carry On series. And I tell you, it tastes like, just like a blue loo. It's so clean, I could eat my dinner off it, you know, and all that sort of stuff. It was a lot of fun. Bloody hard to get off. My three-year-old son got it out and drew on the carpet with oh, the blue loo. <laughs> And uh, it pretty much yeah. it stains. It is whatever's horrible. in that it's stuff. Horrible, yes. Alrighty. So, do you think you would have been able to keep your series work going if you hadn't have done the corporate animation work? We were learning and learning every day. Every TVC, you would learn 
something technical, some different approach. They're short, they're sharp, they take about four to six weeks to do. Uh, You get them out of the building, you draw a different style and model every time. So it's great training. Cool. Now I'd like to move on and talk about Vista Tunes. Yep. Let's talk about developing a concept for a series. Where do you start and how do you do that? Okay, let's go back to that blank sheet of paper. Sometimes it starts with an idea. Sometimes it starts with a doodle that's a character that you think, ooh, this could work in a particular way. Sometimes it starts with just writing a story. There's no correct answer. Once the idea starts to evolve, we need to find a few things. What's the personality of this particular character? Where does he or she live? What is the environment, the universe, and what's going to be the engine driving the stories? Once you've got that, you then have to say, has this story engine going to give us 10 stories, 20 stories, 50 stories, 100 stories? So something as simple as the coyote and the roadrunner, simple premise, one's trying to eat the other one and fails every single time and the other one's a bit inventive and keeps getting out of it. There you go. Simple, but that's the engine. So that, that can do it. With Jar Dwellers, my initial thought was, what would happen if someone just turned up at Darwin's house and found a jar in a cellar that had been sitting there for 170 years and opened it up? What could possibly come out of it? That's where that idea started. And that was, in my mind, called Animal, Mineral or Vegetable. Then it became Darwin's Jars and then it finally became Jar Dwellers because I thought, maybe I'll get a bit closer to Darwin. So I followed his uh, his real tour around and then started to think, what would he pick up in Patagonia? So I created a character called Ubel that's purple and a female who thinks she's a Patagonian princess, lived high up in the mountain uh, on the cliff uh, side. Then I followed Darwin, trip down to Tasmania, and then I thought maybe he got something from there and that would be like a tree-like cellulose, half cell, half cellulose character, so a bit like a hue and pine tree. Um, Then I followed him further along and he went to Africa. So I got a sort of a hyena doggish type character that became Crunch and then put them in the secret lab, then thought, okay, let's get rid of Darwin and then have a couple of kids arrive back at his place 170 years further down the track. They've gone there to go to school. They find the lift. They find the secret cellar. They find the jars. They find a book. They find his notes. They release them and that's when the story starts. Is there much iteration in when you're coming up with those notes and bouncing it off other people? No, I try to keep it fairly close till I'm happy. I think it's a cheat if you start saying, what do you think I should do here? What do you think I should do here? What do you think? It's better off to resolve it so that you're happy. And if that means going away and coming back again to yourself a few times, that's great. So once you've got your concept, that's the start of the show, then how do you then like expand on that? You then need to start to put a few rules down or even mentally have some rules but there's no drama in having these creatures come out of these jars. I need a baddie. So in my reading and the help of one of the writers, um, he told me about a guy called Cy Covington and his family was really annoyed that he never got mentioned in the Darwin story and they put out a book called Darwin's Shooter. Darwin said, I say, oh, boy, can you get that blighter over there? So uh, Cy Covington, bang, shoot it or trap it or do something to it and... I thought, oh, that'd be nice. I'll have a character like that. And I called him 
Professor Van Riesberger. Then I thought, where's the comedy in that? Maybe Professor Van Riesberger can try and steal these characters that Darwin's put in these jars and when he does that, something happens to his back. If if you've got all these ideas and you're putting them all together, it's all coming together, then how do you know if they're working? You don't. It's something called blind faith. With my experience of adding all these kids' adventures, books, ads, uh, short films together, you start to get a pretty good feel of what might work and might not. Then hone the drawings a bit, get better artists than me to come in and clean them up and make it look fantastic. Then we make a selling brochure and then off we go to the local networks to say, hey, I've got this great idea, are you interested? Uh, at the same time, you go overseas, you go to international markets and you go to other networks or distributors or whatever, say, I've got this great idea and wait for someone to say yes. So let's expand on I've got that great idea. What is the actual method and process in that selling process? So there are some big markets in the during the year, one yeah. called MIPCOM that's just happened. There's Kids Screen. Uh, there's the Asian Animation Summit, which is a new one, Spa here, uh, Screen Forever. And at these markets, if you're lucky enough, the buyers who are looking for children's content will come along and then you arrange about a month in advance to meet them at a certain time at a certain place. And then you've got half an hour to pitch. And in your pitching process, is it story-driven or is it image-driven or is it like... 30% story, you know. They, they, it, do you they sort of... really don't want to know too much about the backstory. They want to know what the concept is about. Yeah. I could start and I've tried it without using Darwin. It doesn't work as much. So I would say this was first inspired by Darwin, yeah. uh, his journey. Everyone seems to know what Darwin is. Then when you talk about these creatures in jars, it seems to get them a bit excited. Then you bring in the wacko Van Riesberg and his back spasm and, and then you talk about the creatures and you give as much passion as you can to the pitch. They start to say yes or no, and usually they say no. And are you giving them a document or are you giving them animations or copyright? Now, that's the um, million-dollar question. How much do you invest in a pilot or a stinger or a trailer? If you're pitching a live-action concept, you would give someone a script and they would imagine certain actors playing the part. With animation, you really have to define your, your style and the look and feel of your characters and be in touch with current trends without being too copycatish. Just to clarify that a bit, do you present a video and some stills? A video will cost around about twenty to $30,000 to make. My first one was about nearly four minutes long and then I went and presented it to Cartoon Network and they said, minute 30. That's all we want to see, minute 30. So from now on, all our stuff is about a minute and a half. In that time, you need to sort of have things happen and and zing them out totally with the style of animation, the style of the character and the look and feel of the story. Before that, though, I tend to go with a flyer. I use a four-page A3 folded in half as my flyer and when I show the flyer, that will have the title on the front. They open it up, they see some sort of major illustration, the concept clearly written out and they tend to be about 70% illustration and 30% words. And then you will have the characters, some description of the characters on the back, probably about half a dozen storylines and a couple of shots from somewhere or other that you've made up. You've put together your great brochure and you've got your video and they say yes. You say, did they really say yes? I think they said yes. (laughs) Then you need to work out a financial structure 
that works out how in the dickens you're going to raise $7.5 million to make the show. And that's just an average yep. pretty good budget. To do that, you will probably be offered between $75,000 to $100,000 per half hour from a local network. It costs close to $300,000 to make a half hour animated TV show. So you've got to find another 200000 per ep. To do that, you either find a way to some of the major funding bodies and try to convince them that it's a worthwhile project, but they want to know where you're going to get the rest of the money. So you then, at these markets, try to get involved with a co-production partner who might be able to bring another $2 million because they can sell it to their country. And if you do that three times, you're nearly there. So Canada, the UK, yep. those sort of BBC sort of people. Exactly. But they have to be in line with people who've done treaties with Australia. Yeah. Because the whole idea is it's not service work, it's sharing the creative process. Yeah. So uh, it's quite complicated, but the Canadian funding bodies want it to have some Canadian content. What we did with Jar Dwellers, the first series, um, was done in Canada, Australia and Colombia. And Columbia did the animation, Canada did half the scripts and the storyboards, and we did the pre-production as well as scripts and storyboard. And they all get points for yeah. certain imports, so then it can become a, a truly official international co-production. Well, it's, initially it sounded easy, but the more you get into it, the harder it sounds. And then, oh, then it gets really complicated. Yeah. Then you have to get into the Australian Taxation Department will have something like the producer's offset. Depending on how much you're spending in Australia, It's I think it's 30% of your budget. They don't give you that money until after you've spent it. So you then have to go and borrow it, make the show, then put a tax return in to justify that expenditure. You're involved in like lots of little areas, executive producer, so you're involved in making the show, you're involved in building the concept. How do you get your mind around all that? There's a path and a process. You really just have to sort of focus at certain times on certain duties. That's the only way to make it work. And get good people to help you out. Oh, and, and of course, um, in the Jar Dwellers 2, 76 people have been employed and like any military operation, you need um, good commanders and soldiers and everyone else working together and marching in the same direction. All right, so that nicely leads us on to the process of animation and sort of from starting an episode through to finishing an episode and starting a series through to finishing a series. Well, it's quite logical because you start off, you've got all your characters drawn out, then you know where your universe is that these are going to perform in, you then know the personalities of every character and some of the key animators will start drawing up the characters doing certain standard uh, walks. Then we draw up or write up a writer's Bible. And this is really like an architect's rules and regulations for building this particular skyscraper you're going to build, which is going to be 26 storeys high. And every one of them is going to have a different theme but they're all going to still look the same. We're doing 52 by 11 minutes in this particular one, so we need 52 stories. And we're going to have a story whereby a problem arises, Sophie is going to try and teach the jar dwellers a particular skill on how to survive. As part of that, one of the jar dwellers will get into trouble, they'll be too close and Van Riceberger will come with his jar tracking machine to try and find them. They all have to escape. We have to save them. And this is 
as the stories come up and continue yeah. on. So the logistics of doing this sort of thing, you work how many weeks on one show and do you do them all in order? Each show takes about four months to produce from start to finish. Yeah. And you've got to finish 52 of them in one year. Doesn't compute. No, it doesn't. So there's the whole lot of series of bricks. You have different departments. The show comes into the writing department. It's there for six weeks. Uh, then goes into the storyboarding for another four weeks. Uh, it goes from storyboarding into, as I said, different departments to break it up into smallest parts. And then it all goes through the hands of the production manager who will start to farm it out. That's Neil that I uh, went to uni with a long, long time ago. Yep. And it's 100% project management. Like building a complicated machine. Totally. Yeah. You're working often with partners in different countries. Correct. How do you manage the logistics and the workflow when you're working in two different countries? Canada was great because they had a time zone that suited us perfectly. What I haven't mentioned yet is producers, assistant producers, line producers that are sending scripts away, having them come back, collating notes, bring it to our script meetings, and non-drawing people, but they're still as important as everyone else in the building. And so the management is thing that you learn over time and basically you can't take on 52 11-minute series until you've done a couple of short films. It's like if you're a building company, you can't win the project to build a 68-storey uh, skyscraper. Yeah, unless you've built 10-storey skyscrapers. Exactly. Yeah. If you were one of those little skyscraper people and they, they want to go on and make a short or they want to go on and make a series, what are the key things that you recommend as advice? You have to invest your own time in making it look like you want it to look. Script writing, if you're half skilled at writing itself, isn't too onerous. Then to tee up with someone like a script editor to say, what do you think of my script? There's a fabulous program called Final Draft, formats it, it makes it look fantastic and you actually feel like you're a writer. You have to put it in that format because that's what the whole industry looks at. Any experienced person can look at it and say, and they can flip the pages to know that, it's going to be so many seconds long or so many minutes long or so many hours long. Then you need to have a little bit of trial animation with your main characters and how funny or serious or heavy or deadly they are so you can put in their brain what your vision is. So you're saying that you really need to, you need to write in a professional format that the industry uses and then make your vision clear so other people can see it. Absolutely. Again, I've seen people turn up at meetings with a little doll they've made to say this is their main character. They've made it out of plasticine or um, sculpted it or baked it or something. That all helps as well. But to get the money from international networks, you've got to come up to an international standard to make life easier for the decision makers. Is there any other ways of getting funding that's outside the traditional sort of network model? There's crowdsourcing and all that sort of stuff. But again, you still have to do something to pitch to the general public. So you need to have your characters, a bit of a storyline, your concept, and a, maybe a bit of interactive stuff that gets people excited. Are you interested in that sort of world, you know, where people are creating series online and building a network and audience and then making money out of it that way? All is fair. Yeah. And really, we have a situation where there's not enough screens, talking about the networks, yeah. um, for people to get their product on. So there's a, a revolution. And the revolution is get your stuff out there and for people to see and then hopefully you'll get enough numbers to go back to the big screens or wherever it's going to go um, to let someone fund your show to be made so they can make money off it and you can make money off it. 
Talking about revolutions, how did you go in that changeover period from pencil to digital? I jumped pretty early. I think I was one of the first people in Australia. I had, again, that getting back to John Bird at Swinburne. He would call me in and say, have a look at this, have a look at this. We had an opportunity. We did a film clip and I tried it and it was pretty exciting. Then I bought some equipment and Mickey Duck at that stage. I could see the writing on the wall. And there was a nice program called AXA, which no longer exists, which allowed you to scan the paper, digitise them, and then you could treat that like a cell and paint underneath the level uh, digitally uh, and then collate it. That was the start of it. And then someone came up with the idea uh, using vector-based illustrations to have them a bit like a marionette. The keyframe animation style. Yeah, but more like it's cut out. Yeah. So that means you draw your character different ways, whatever you think will be needed in the storyboard. So it might be three-quarter front, might be profile, might be back view. You do turnarounds, basically have a different level for the face. You get a different level for the mouth and you can put all your different lip shapes in. You have different levels for the eyes so you can have them wink and blink and you can have angry mouths, happy mouths, and it's what I call prefabricated marionettes. The storyboard artist then takes the brunt of the creativity and he becomes much more of a director. And in the storyboard, we'll have the setups of the characters doing whatever they need to do and posing them. The animator then gets the prefabricated character all rigged and that's yep. another art form that didn't used to exist whereby uh, you can pull the arm and the arm comes with it and the hands, click the hands and you can have all the different hand shapes to hold this or that. And the scene planner then puts that in a folder and the animator looks at the storyboard and starts animating to instructions. And with all these technology changes, did you find yourself reskilling multiple times and do you enjoy that? Oh, fantastic. Like, to stay up with it, it's a nice challenge. And as the whole world keeps saying, it's a learning society. you just got to keep learning and you've got to keep changing and staying up with it because there's no getting off. And that's, that's pretty cool to say for someone who's in his 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you're still happy that. to keep on going? Because I found when I got to 40s, it was like, oh, I just couldn't be bothered. But now I've sort of got back on board. No way we would be able to produce 15 minutes of animation a week without this technology. That is true, Uh, but it just means that they're creating heaps and heaps more content now. And that's why, because it's a global competition, it's got to be world quality, it's got to stand up. If you're doing crap, well, then it's just unfortunate because it just won't get there. It is a global industry. Do you guys outsource any of your work overseas? Outsource? No, I haven't done that uh, since the Little Elvis days when we had a little shortage of in-betweeners and we had to send it off to China. But a funny story... We had three key drawings. The first drawing had the character Little Elvis on it and his ears were put on the key drawing. The middle drawing, someone had left the ear off. Third drawing had Little Elvis with his ear on it. So when it got sent shipped to China, it came back that the in-between, in-between the ear down to nothing and then from nothing up to the ear again on the third drawing. So it was hilarious. Where, as if it's in your own studio, you can just say, that's not right, put the ear in the middle drawing and then everything will be okay. Yeah. Sounds stupid, but that's what happens. How do you compete with um, studios in developing worlds then? Having the production under the same roof is fantastic. You walk around, you see great stuff, bring everyone to everyone's attention. You see a mistake, you can fix it immediately. Uh, If there's the wrong background, you call the background department in, they say, I've got a better background than that for this. 
there's no communication problem at all. Yeah. If you're going offshore, you need to have someone on the ground that you trust or you send your own person there. You're talking foreign languages, you're talking translations, you're talking, oh, we didn't get that. No, oh, we fixed that already. No, you haven't. Yes, we have. No, you haven't. Yes, you have. And you get these silly little things. You've got deadlines on every day and it's not so easy. The main differing factor is government help. Now, government help is in the form of someone fantastic like Film Victoria who were appreciative of us putting all the work in Victoria, so they helped us out with one of their um, funding schemes. The producers offset similar schemes that allow you to bring the cost of your labour down. Yeah. gets to the point where the advantage in having it all in the one room, once the prices start to level up a bit, there's no argument. It's an interesting industry, animation industry, and it gets a lot of people, uh, gives them stimulating work. And it's something that, like, I think building our own brands and intellectual property is a really important thing. And I think it's something that could be done really well in Australia. It is done well, but on a bigger scale. Do you think that we can compete globally? I think we are competing globally. We're exporting. Got to the point where our animation industry is being respected from major players overseas and they will come here to seek intellectual property or co-productions. That is a great place to be. For Melbourne to have four major productions happening at the same time is wonderful. I'd like to move on now to talk about your major series. It'd be great if you could sort of tell us about the process, tell us about you know, the challenges, tell us about the things that work and don't work. Suspect Mustache was an idea brought to us by one of the uh, actors from the original Jardweller series, Fabian Lapham, uh, who came up with the, a sketch comedy concept. We took that to uh, SBS, who had a comedy section at the time, and um, with the help of Ariel um, Weymouth, our producer, were able to speak to the different bodies and say, hey, we want to do this, do you want to be in, do you want to da 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 and everyone held hands and said yes. So then we set out to produce um, five five-minuters, which doesn't sound like much, it's one episode, but that was sort of become its own pilot. Yeah. Um, and then we did lots of other little tiny skits coming in off that, which we then put on to social media. Sasha Bering was our designer and that was an outsider coming into the to supply his work that we would then rig and animate and um, work to the voices. And what was the challenges of that project? Getting as far away from respectability as we could, but just trying to be original and come up with uh, Fabian's characters were fantastic and so were the, were the skits that touched on religion, uh, life, hipsters, you name it. We just had fun. And how did you interlink the different episodes together? Oh, little interstitials or go to a spinning moustache, then go to the next uh, little skit. It works a treat. You can still get it online. If you look at Sussex Moustache, you can see it and have a good old laugh. If you could tell us about the new series of Jar Dwellers. Yeah. Initially when um, I thought of the idea of Darwin and the creatures in the jars in his secret place, I thought they would have lots of creatures anyway took it to Cartoon Network in the US and their suggestion was we took the best properties from all the different creatures and put it into the three main creatures. That was a turning point. I pitched a second season to Network 10 in Australia and they said yes and 
The reason they said yes was because we decided to come up with finding one little room that we opened the door of and there just happened to be eight new jar dwellers hidden in a second secret cache and we let them go in the first episode and they go everywhere and we don't know who they are, what they are and then slowly by surely, episode by episode, we start to find out who they are and what their properties are and how their stories relate to the three main jar dwellers. And what has been the differences between developing series one and developing series two from a sort of production standpoint? And the production was a three-country production in the first one. Just missed the funding window of Canada and Colombia. So instead, uh, I had Channel 10's um, commission and away we go. The new characters that you developed, were they adaptions from the first series or were they like you already had them? Or did you redevelop them again? No, I um, I worked on them during the first series. Um, that was three years ago and then started to hone them up. Again, I have uh, wonderful artists at work that would then put them on model with the first series. Yeah. And that means sort of making the eyes homogenous or working the colour scheme. And uh, they're pretty exciting. What's the length of the series and how many people do you have working in your production? The first series was 52 by 11s. We're making another 52 by 11s. We'd finished 26 of those 52, so we're halfway there. And how many people working on the production? We have employed 76 people altogether. On a daily basis, there's about 50 people at the studio. And are you running multiple shifts or do you just uh, do just a day shift? No, we do multiple shifts. We start at 7 in the morning and the first shift finishes around about 2-ish and the second shift starts at 2 and goes till 9 at night. And most of the work that's being done is uh, in the animation department? Most of the work being done in the animation department, but, but yeah. again, we have a production department which is as important as everyone else. Do you voice the whole show at the place where you're working or do you have another No, voice? we work together with uh, Music and Effects in the South Yarra yeah. with Deron Kippen and his team there. And we did Little Elvis there and that was a wonderful experience. Deron and I have worked together for, for the whole time since Little Elvis, which is over 20-odd years. David Cheshire is doing the music, fabulous creative team. It's like 76 rows all rowing down the river in one big boat, all heading in the same direction in time. It is so exciting. Where do you look for inspiration and what inspires you? I'm really not a student of everything that's going on, but I have following other cartoonists for a very long time, humour in writing and Hopefully that comes out in the show. Again, one of my main catch cries is we try very hard to be original. <laughs> so you don't find any inspiration? Like initially you said you found inspiration in Mad? Oh, still do. Still do? I, I still uh, read it uh, every month. I've seen it evolve as well to stay relevant to today's kids. What's the future look like for you? And is there anything that you still want to do? Um, yes, I'd love to do a movie. Uh, I think that's the next step. I don't know how hard that is. But a movie's it's dumb in a way because it's only three 26 half-hour episodes put together. Yeah. But somehow rather it becomes such a huge thing and it has to be perfection. If you wanted to go into 3D, it's got to be as good as Pixar and Disney. If you're in 2D, does it still work? Um, and there's a whole genre coming out of Europe where – they're making movies for round about 7 to $10 million that have their own independent release and are making a dollar. So that would be nice to go there and, and make it work. Cool. So what do you think were the key contributors to your longevity? 
bit of stupidity, blind faith and very timely phone calls that have arrived to say, would you like to do this? And do you think that it's just your passion? Does it just keep you going? Because I, I had my own studio for seven years and then I was just like, I'm tired. I'm going to go and work for someone else. I must confess it's not easy, but one of the mottos at work is for us to have fun. I still find drawing just totally exciting. In fact, my producer, Ariel, will often say to me, ooh, you're getting a bit itchy and scratchy. Why don't you go and do a drawing? <laughs> and that calms me down and away we go again. Cool. I think that's a fantastic place to leave it. I just wanted to say that I've always enjoyed your style. I saw your cartoons in the early 90s and didn't know they were your cartoons until just recently. It's been a joy and I've learnt a lot. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's good fun. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you can come find Matthew Packwood on Facebook where I post everything you need to know about Masters of Motion. You can also check out Masters of Motion's gallery on Instagram. You can find out more about Peter Visca at viscatoons.com. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. Bye-bye.